and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them. Hello everybody. Today I'm speaking to Tom Rengers. Tom is a Senior Technical Leader, Private Wealth with the Australian Tax Office. He is a Masters of Economics, majoring in Professional Accountancy, a Bachelor of Laws, is a member of the Institute of Chartered Accountants and Tax Institute. Thank you, Tom, for agreeing to speak to me about where your law degree has taken you. Hi, Tom. Hi, Loretta. Thanks, Thanks for the offer. And... Um, and with him is his lovely wife, Frances Lockhart, who's an audiologist with Hearing Australia, not Australian Hearing anymore. Thanks, Frances. She's going to help me dig deep into the life of a tax lawyer with the ATO. Thanks, Loretta. <laughs> Thanks, Frances. So, Tom, how did you start? Oh, how? well, you didn't start doing the law degree, did you? You started doing something else. Did you start with economics or or was it? I started, I thought I would just start doing a single degree and I thought that would be economics. That was when I was in year 12 doing the HSC in, in, um, in New South Wales. I didn't think I'd have the marks for law, but then I got my results back and I realised I would actually get into law, so I changed my preferences. So I did start law straight away and I went to Macquarie Uni for that. And why Macquarie? I liked the philosophy of Macquarie University. It wasn't a black letter law school. It was actually mm. a law school that focused more around the history and philosophy, more of a critical legal studies approach to law, which just sat with me a lot better about actually understanding law and actually why I wanted to do law. And why did you want to do law, Tom? <laughs> I did not want to be a victim in life. So I largely did law for my own interest and for my own sense of um, being safe through life. I thought my accounting degree would be the one that my career would be. Mm. I wanted to do law because I wanted to understand the way rights and obligations were enforced and the way rights and obligations could be used against you. So it was actually more of a personal interest at that time. And why was that? Was it something in your background that that made you do that? or Not my background, just my psychology. I mm. think that, um, as I said, I just never wanted to feel a victim and I had the opportunity to learn something here that would help me not be a victim. Mm. It's, is that because, I mean, been, having a German background myself... <laughs> Is that, do you think this was because of your German background, you know, that you wanted to know things or, you know, be precise or have that knowledge or do you think it was your background that might have influenced that thinking? I think the German background is probably knowing the history of Germany mm -hmm. and it was important for me for that 
to really understand law, the rule of law. Mm. And I knew I'd always be personally passionate about the rule of law because I think that is the thing that can can save society mm. and the thing that went wrong in Germany. So from mm. that perspective, being German was always in my background around <coughs> that. But in terms of my personal psychology, I just always felt no one can pull the wool over my eyes if I know what my rights are at law. Mm. I, I must admit, and we said it, because the reason I asked is because I was very like direct when I was about 13 I thought this is what I want to do I want to become a lawyer so I always knew that that's what I wanted to do and that's a very young age to make that decision was it the same sort of things from a young age or did you come to that you know in your teenage years having that philosophy I remember when I was 12 I started to learn and think about what I wanted to do after school and after being a child Mm. And then I learned there was a thing called university. And I thought that was an escape from my childhood. It was an escape from my parents. It was an escape from the life I had. And it was an escape into a future I wanted. Mm. So knowing there was a university, and then I started to look around career options and things I could study. Being a first-generation migrant, I was very risk-averse. I wanted something that would give me security and help me establish myself in the new country that I love. Mm. So I did focus primarily on university as being a a career option. But I always wanted to mix it in with something that I thought I could be personally passionate about and personally care for. I'm going to take you down that road a little bit more because being a bit of a, being a, you know, Having that sort of a migrant background, because you weren't born here in Australia, were you? So no, I came over very young ago. Yeah. Were you? So did you, you? Was your first language German, or? My parents spoke German at home to me. Mm. So until I started school, it's the only language I heard other than what I heard on TV. And um, I remember when I started school, um, I felt like English was not the language that I knew, and it took me quite a while to feel comfortable at school and being able to talk to talk to people mm. at school. Do you think that made it more difficult? In ter- one of the things that I've noticed with having a second language and learning another language first was that I have known, I have thought about this, that probably the way that I spoke and the way that I wrote was very much influenced by the grammar that I'd learnt and the German grammar is very different to the English grammar. Did that... Did that affect you, do you think, with your schooling? and? I, I don't think it was quite so much the, the rules of grammar, but I think it was having, having to consciously think about the words and consciously mm. think about the ideas. You, be, you became very precise and aware mm. of ideas. Mm. Um, they weren't natural. You actually had you had to consciously think about what you were saying and consciously think about their meaning. Mm. I guess in, in, in that sense, it's it's always been part of... If you talk about that English mm. as a second language, I think that's part mm. of the psychology. You become very aware of what words mean, which interestingly goes back into the importance of words in law, which has been my career ever since. It's <laughs> probably why you went there. <laughs> but you did. I noticed... Well, did you end up doing your... Uh, so in, in New South Wales, you had the choice of just doing a practical legal training course if you wanted to practice as a lawyer. 
Because by that stage, articles were no longer in existence. Is that right? Not in New South no. Wales. You could go to the College of Law and it yeah. was effectively a combined program. You could either mm. go into... Well, the, the divided profession mm. in New South Wales was, was already different to even... I think it's, it's, it's residual up here. Um, but at the time, I thought my career would be around um, accounting and mm. because of my personal position I really wanted to focus on that so I didn't feel the need to do the, the College of Law or the Practical mm. Legal Studies mm. component I needed to get on and actually start to to earn a living which goes back to I think the, the being the first generation migrant and, and the rest of the law degree like I said was just there always in the background to help me be better at what I thought I'd be when I started my career, I went straight to an accounting firm, mm. and they were primarily interested in, in my accounting qualification, the professional accounting stream. Mm. The fact that I did law got me into their tax division, so my career did start in a tax division of an accounting firm, so I didn't need the practical legal studies. Are you able to tell me who you were working for at the time? At the time, it was one of the large international accounting firms called Arthur Anderson. Mm. Are they still around? They are not around. They got into some ethical problems, which eventually saw the firm demise. Mm. Um, are you, were, you weren't part of that, were you, Tom? <laughs> no, I wasn't part of that. It was actually the accounting division that got into trouble around their accounting obligations. But I, I saw it coming, mm. and I actually left the firm a couple of years before that happened. But... It's interesting, I left the firm because of the ethical dilemmas which I felt I was placed under. Mm. Um, so I'm very glad I made the choice to leave. Are you able to um, tell me some of those? What you thought of were those ethical dilemmas? Like, you know, in general terms? Yeah. Obviously, obviously oh. not in detail, but mm. the thing that has always stuck in my mind, and it goes back to my core values I had even before mm. I started, the thing that stuck in my mind was when I, I wrote an advice or a draft advice and I took it to the partner, basically, and it had to do with superannuation and interaction mm. with tax law. And, and the advice that we, we, we said was, you, you can't do this. It, mm. it will, it's just in breach of the law. Mm. And the partner looked at it and said, thank you very much. You're probably right, but this is not the advice the client's paying for. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? I said, this client will never be audited. They just need an advice in their back pocket. Uh -huh. So pretty soon after that, I knew I couldn't stay there. And I, well, I agree with you, but I still remember because I have been good friends with Frances, um, as you know, since we went to school together. And I did remember you were not very happy because I think at Arthur Anderson, you were still allowed to smoke in the building at the time. I remember you t telling me about this was outrageous that people were still able to smoke at that time in the building. Do you remember that, Francis? Probably at the very start, mm. but I mean that mm. that changed quite quickly. But again, it only changed because the law changed. Mm. Um, I was actually more concerned about other issues I had around the values of the firm. I mean, smoking wasn't an issue specific to the firm. That was that was yeah. general, but it, it it did concern me how. How can you force me to be exposed to this when I'm working here? Unfortunately, mm. the law finally caught up with that view. Now, it, what, what concerned me more about Arthur Anderson was 
a huge amount of sexism in the organisation. Mm. Um, those values that I talked about, that they regard professionalism to not involve any sense of public value, mm. but to do the best by your client. It's that real 80s mindset, that whole Gordon Gecko mindset, that you are just there to optimise the wealth of your client. Uh, there's no, There was at that time no sense of public value and public responsibility in what you did. And when I went on and did my master's in accounting, I did a course there on ethics, which really focused on that idea. If you, mm. if you want to say you're a professional, and if you want to say that your, your credentials and your skill is professional, mm -hmm. it comes with public responsibility and public values. And the profession at that time didn't have that, but I think, I think it's got better. Uh, mm. And I think, I think the tax office has actually contributed a lot to creating that relationship where there is that expectation now. There's a partnership between the tax office and the tax professionals, which does focus on public value and public responsibility. Well, I mean, it's it would have been a very brave thing though to do as a young as a young professional to make that decision, because at that time I remember Arthur Anderson was a big deal in in accountancy circles, and to have a job there was a big deal. So to make that decision to actually leave because it didn't fit in with what you thought of ethically, was um, you know a pretty brave move, especially when you're already had a partner at that stage yeah and especially when I when mm. I said what, what was motivating me at the time was anyway about financial responsibility mm. and financial security yeah. <clears throat> fortunately I had an opportunity to um, to move to one of the uh, legal publishers at the time mm. and I took advantage of that it was still at that time a backward step but it was a great opportunity for me to move away from that from that culture into one where I thought I could actually be a lot more more objective and let my values speak for themselves and providing you know commentary Mm. and, and uh, working in a, in a commentary service rather than working for the client's best interest. Mm. And, uh, I mean, how did you get that job? At, was it Thomas Reuters? Is Thompson Reuters, Reuters is the firm. Yeah. Now, back then it was actually Butterworths, yeah. um, which your listeners will, will know through Hallsby's Laws of Australia and the Butterworth services. Mm. Uh, they, they had the tax division at the time. They were one of the leading tax publishers. My firm, so Arthur Anderson was commissioned to write some significant commentary on a new area of tax law, mm. and I had the job of actually coordinating all the partners and managers and actually editing the material mm. um, before it got approved to release to, to, um, to Butterworth for publication. So I got to know a lot of people at Butterworth at the time, and uh, through that relationship, they were looking for some people to join their team, and... I was there and they knew me and it was a good opportunity. Oh, good on you. And you stayed there for three years? No, I think mm. I was there for about um, five or six years mm. in the end. Yeah, mm. five or six years, yeah. And um, what sort of work did that involve? They obviously looked after, back then, uh, loose-leaf commentaries. They were loose leaf commentary service, mm. which is now obviously all online, yes. but uh, it was actually updating the commentary on the tax laws. Mm. But quite significantly, they also did a weekly updating service called the Weekly Tax Bulletin, mm. and I became one of the editors for that. So all of the cases, all of the tax office publications, I had the job of actually summarising and 
providing commentary on. You learned a lot of skills doing that too, didn't you? You actually had a lot of publishing skills that you wouldn't have had otherwise. That's right, not just the legal skills around interpretation mm. and understanding the law, but a lot of publishing skills, you're, you're right. Um, the whole publishing process uh, as, as its own, as its own um, profession was, was fascinating how, how the things you need to be mindful of in, in order to publish, well, the way you need to write in order to publish. Mm. And there was a whole lot of um, technology that was coming to that profession as well at the time. There was lots of uh, challenges with, um, with, with online publishing, lots of challenges with um, the whole information technology side of it. And we, I came in at a time when we were moving from the very old-fashioned loose-leaf commentary mm -hmm. service and what that would mean for publishing and, and the disruptions it would cause, who would be our who would be our competitors in that new space? And I think the a lot of the legal profession is going through the same the, the same issues at the moment. Well, who are your who are your competitors now in, in that space? Mm. Is it is it firms like like Google? Is it firms like Apple? Um, traditionally, publishers just saw themselves saw saw their other mm. publishers of their competition, but uh, especially like Google and Google Scholar and, and the law firms themselves got more and more into publishing type products. And how are they coping with Wikipedia? <laughs> Everyone looks down on Wikipedia. If you have to resort to Wikipedia, you know you don't have the answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, except uh, I think it's sort of got a resurgence, Wikipedia, doesn't it? <laughs> it depends on the topic. <laughs> I think it's a good place to start, start yeah. but you will never admit that was your source. All right, okay. Never put it into a university paper. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so then, how did? You, what made you decide to go the? What made you decide to go off to the tax office? When I took the job with Arthur Anderson, I also had an offer from the tax office to join their graduate program. Mm. As I said, the, the, the pay difference made it really impossible to take the tax office job. And talking to people, it would have meant starting as a graduate and having to climb that public service career path. Mm. And I knew from my own personality, I'd really struggle with that. So when the financial advantage was to work for Arthur Anderson, um, I took that. But I was also really, really always interested in actually working on that side of the tax system. So when an opportunity came up to apply for a tax office job at a very senior level without having to continually go for those promotions. Just talking about <laughs> We were just talking We were just talking about now Francis, forget about the roast that's cooking and our lunching with lawyers <laughs> and the fact that Tom's giving you instructions about what to do. <laughs> we're gonna get back to why you went to the how you got into the tax department. So you were saying that you'd got this um, that you'd been offered a position at the as a as a graduate, but that the pay difference was so different with Arthur Anderson. But I'm sure that working for the tax office was probably a lot better in terms of work life balance. It has been ever since. Mm. I'm still not sure whether I would have had the same success 
at the tax office had I joined as a graduate because mm. there's a lot of challenges joining that sort of hierarchy mm. um, as a graduate. Um, I'm very grateful I had the opportunity to come in at the level I did. Mm. Um, I feel I can make a huge difference and a huge contribution to the tax system at the level I am. And one of the things I'm very conscious of is, is making sure that the people I work with have all the opportunities so that they can express and, and live the values that they see in their job and so, support them. So is that one of the, you know, one of the lessons really if you're talking to young people who are thinking about what sort of career that they want or thinking about moving from the position that they've got at the moment, would that be one of the lessons that sometimes it is good to work in private practice before going to work for a government department? Is it look I think it goes both ways. I think mm. you are always going to be a more well rounded professional when you've mm. had the opportunity to see uh, the system from those different perspectives. Mm. So I think it could go either way. I know we are very keen now for secondment programs and we're very keen for even our staff to eventually join the private sector because we know they bring the values they've learnt with us to their professional roles externally. And we're equally very open to bringing people in from the private sector because they bring that client perspective and they can help make sure that we understand what we are administering from that practical perspective mm. as well. So if, if you're going to step back and say how important it is that we all work together in partnership, mm. I think it is really good to make sure that you can bring all of those perspectives together. Mm. Oh. Um, I was actually going to take you back because just before when Francis fixed the roast... <laughs> And you were having a discussion about dinner, which or lunch, which is very important for us. Um, we were talking a little bit about Arthur Anderson and the work-life balance and what it was like to work in a firm really in the 80s and 90s and what they thought about the gender roles really. Um, and I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what sort of hours you were doing and what the expectations were on you in that role? I think the expectations always were that you would not be one of the first to leave, um, that you would stay back uh, to finish something just because you were, you were given the work that day. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the expectations were just to be seen to be making that commitment to the firm, mm -hmm. even if there was no real value add. It was all just about playing the game and being seen. Um, and that would have been very difficult if you were, um, like we were saying before, you met Francis when you were very young and you were having wanting to have a family and that sort of a commitment would have, made, would have been very difficult then to put that energy into family life. It was, and I, I always mm. thought I made only... A very valuable contribution to the firm and I was prepared to do that mm. but I wasn't prepared firstly to sell my soul mm. to do that but also to end up with no work like what we call now work-life balance mm. there's no way I wanted that to be my life um, I wanted to 
be able to contribute, but be able to contribute in a way that still kept my humanity. Mm. Um, when I realised I was in a situation where not only was that not valued, but I was actually being asked to do things I thought were unethical, mm. well, th- th- that just set, set it in motion that it wasn't the place for me. But I, I stayed there to finish off my professional qualifications. I stayed there to, to build the skills I needed for the rest of my career. But um, it's, it's very difficult to get ahead in an organisation where you are really at odds, your own core values are at odds with the core values of the organisation. That's one thing I've learned. And do you think, I mean, one of the things that working for government department, I think sometimes they do really spend quite a bit of time on working out what their core values are and, and relating it to staff and and that people generally work there with the same core values. I've found in the public sector, and especially in the ATO, there's a really a strong sense of the importance of what we do for society. And it's not just about raising revenue. We, we really see it in terms of the tax system enables government to provide all of the services that we expect government to provide. Mm. No matter who's in power and from time to time, no matter how that fits with your personal priorities, but it is the only way that we can, through collective action, provide public good. And I know everyone I work with is really, really big on that idea of public value and public good. And I think that is one of the key attributes of the public sector. And the uh, Australian Public Service Commission talks about that a lot through the feedback and the, and, and, and the, um, the staff surveys that it does. There's this immense focus on public value of what we do. I think it's a very satisfying, you know, in, in terms of going to work, if you can know that you're doing something that's good for the public, it's a very satisfying thing to do, you know. Absolutely, yeah. and fortunately, again, at the level I am, I, I have the ability to work on things where you can actually see the difference mm. you're making, which goes back to that idea about this, the difficulty you have when you start as a graduate. Mm. And I'm very mindful of that when I actually w- work with others to help them see the contribution they're making, making to that bigger mm. picture and how important it is no matter what you're doing and the level you're at, you're actually all working together to achieve that. Yeah, it's a great thing. Anyway, well, we're going to go into some of that, what you've been doing there. And I was very interested to read that you had a role in the heart split loan anti-avoidance case. But I want to know what that was about. I think I remember reading something about it, but I'm not entire so maybe tell me you could explain what that case was about and when was it when was that case decided oh i don't know the year anymore it was the early 2000s Mm. i believe i could be wrong Mm. how i got involved i was in an area of the office that had responsibility for uh, coordinating and providing technical leadership on litigation i picked up that case halfway through after a colleague moved on to another area Uh, We had one at first instance, so a single judge Mm. federal court, and it had gone on to full federal court appeal when I had to pick up the case. 
we lost it full federal court and then it went on to the high court and mm. um, what the case was about was a lot of tax planning around making tax deductions for interest effectively what what should everybody would regard as their private interest on their personal home mm. but finding a way to make a tax deductible and it goes back to the whole model and, and priority that we have around investment properties and negative gearing mm. and all of that and the uh the finance sector cottoned onto that and they're always looking for ways to arbitrage the tax system mm. and for ways to turn non-deductible interest into deductible interest because the money is just phenomenal. Mm. If they can come up with a product they can sell to thousands of people, it's worth their while in fees and it also makes a significant difference to uh, people's personal tax liabilities mm. but it also makes a significant difference to the amount of revenue that the government raises. So there's a lot at stake. These arrangements on their face make sense. They follow all of the law. And we looked at all of that and we found all of different ways to, to deal with it. But at the end of the day, these arrangements had the purpose of minimising tax. Mm. So in the end, we were able to persuade the High Court and actually by a 5 mil majority Wow. <laughs> that this was a, a tax avoidance arrangement mm. that just did not work. So was it basically you you said that this loan on your house really was in relation to something else? So how did it work? Well, it's, it, it's mm. called it, you know, the, split, the split loans because you're actually effectively taking out a loan on your investment property mm. and a loan on your home, mm. but you're actually skewing everything towards the investment property. Uh -huh. So you're paying off your home very quickly while the loan on your investment property is not being paid off and in some mm. cases that loan is actually going up mm. so it's about manipulating it's it's yeah. arbitrage between those two loans and what we worked out with our with our senior counsel and with um, Australian government solicitor how, how to actually prove that there was actually no benefit whatsoever in this other than the tax benefit so we spent a lot of time working out how to present that to the High Court. Again, I learnt a lot through that process working with our senior and junior counsel. I remember being pulled up at one time when one of the counsel told me I'm being tendentious. <laughs> what does tendentious mean? He says I was arguing for the point that I wanted to prove. <laughs> or I was assuming that my conclusion was correct through the <laughs> argument. So that, that point has stuck with me ever since, that you, you really can't do that when mm. you're trying to present something to the High Court. Or, and it's stuck with me also mm. ever since in terms of the way that I try to work out, out the legal advice. Well, it means that you... And I, I agree with you in some ways. Sometimes when you're too passionate to, it doesn't... You, you're not persuasive yeah. because you're so... Like you said, you're so wedded to a particular idea that you can't see all the arguments... Yeah. that might be against that idea and often you know when you do f see people people present as too passionate you tend not to listen to them but if people are very measured and quiet or yeah. you know more measured in their delivery people tend to listen I think it is a good lesson it's probably something that I've learned in the past few years myself and I've learned I've learned that a lot too that no matter what you personally feel you bring yourself as a professional to these issues. Mm. And you, need, you need to actually be able to keep those things separate. 
I don't think you'll win an argument with passion, and this is what mm. counsel counsel told me. Um, but as I said, bec because of that learning and working with counsel and working with their own people, we were quite stunned that we had a 5 nil victory in the High Court. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think a lot of the tax profession thought we... It was a 50-50, and they thought if we win, we'd win in a 3-2 majority. It was very interesting the day that we did pick up the uh, the judgment from from the registry office. Um, we, we looked at the copy and we went through each of the judgments. 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, 4-0, 5-0. And we had to really contain our enthusiasm because <laughs> the other party were picking up their com co uh, copy as well. So we, we very uh, quietly went to the lifts, pressed the ground floor button, waited till we were at least five, five floors down, and then we just yelled in excitement. <laughs> but we immediately knew we were worried that it was such a strong victory that it might actually put at risk our, our, our powers, um, that... If, if we won that case so strongly, it could mean that our powers were too big. So mm -hmm. immediately we had to start thinking about how to, how to sort of tone down this, that this wasn't showing that we had immense powers to overturn any commercial mm -hmm. arrangement. We had to really show that it was very unique to this situation. So we're very mindful not to, uh, not to gloat. Mm -hmm. And we're very mindful to make sure that we explained that this was the right outcome on those facts and not that we had we had powers that would be taken away from us. Mm. Oh, well, that's... I mean, what a great decision. But I'm sure you had a drink afterwards. <laughs> yeah, he would have, yeah. <laughs> He's German. <laughs> Come on. Of course. <laughs> I, I, I think only after we wrote all those media releases, yeah. <laughs> so... If you were thinking of going to be a lawyer in the tax industry or even at the ATO, like there are some other stuff that the ATO does, like general compliance work or that lawyers could be interested in. So I'm really interested in if you were thinking about the sort of work that you could do at the ATO, what are the sort of roles that you can do there? With a legal background? Yeah, with a legal background, of course, yeah. Um... We have a lot of general lawyers. Okay, the, mm. the first thing is, obviously, we have our, our tax law stream, mm. which is the technical tax law, and we have, we have mm. lawyers in that space. We have accountants. Mm. We also have a lot of valuation staff because a lot of the tax act oh, is yeah. now around valuations. So we mm. have a lot of people with the economic qualifications around that. But we also have uh, a general counsel area who are responsible for the, uh, the ATO's... Uh, corporate responsibilities mm. so we have a lot of lawyers in that area as well who look after the uh, the commission of taxation's responsibilities um, as as any other agency around employment law um, uh, contracts procurement mm. so there's a lot of legal work in that space there's obviously a lot of legal work for tax qualified people i think there's also a lot of um, opportunity for people who who have the legal qualifications but don't actually want to pursue, you know, directly a legal yeah. career. And I think, like you said, the people who work in compliance, which we call mm. our engagement area, and we call it engagement because it's meant to be less adversarial. Mm. It's actually just where we feel there's a responsibility for us to check and work with you in mm. managing 
your own compliance rather than mm. us coming in and saying you've done something wrong. Mm. We have a lot of programs around that and they don't necessarily rely on you having your formal legal qualifications but having a really good understanding of law and not just tax law but like I said why I was mm. interested in the law to begin with a really good understanding around commercial law, family law comes up an awful lot in, a, in especially in the private the private mm. wealth business line I am a lot of tax issues come up when there's family breakdown they come up when there's inheritance and succession issues mm. so having a good understanding of, of the way we as a society have organised ourselves around law and all those domains of law mm. make you a much better professional yeah I think it's a it's a really it's a really good thing if you can branch out into those other areas or do other things like litigation isn't for everybody or that adversarial sort of work it's it's not the sort of thing that you do do you also have a big role in um what we would call i suppose that's more in your general compliance work but more in community legal education work around or is that done by lawyers or is we have a tax help program mm. where we have a lot of people both within the office and also a lot of other volunteers mm. who, who, who come and, and work with us to help the community meet their tax, tax obligations. So uh, volunteers with it, that come into the tax office to be educated or that are working with the tax office? Volunteers who actually learn what they need to know mm. to help yeah. disadvantaged, marginalised mm. um, members of the community to meet their tax obligations. Oh wow, yeah. I didn't know about that. It's pretty interesting. And um, do you then have lawyers in your policy area? Do you have a policy area? We mm. have what we call a new measures mm. area and they yeah. look after policy. Policy is largely owned by Treasury, so the Department yeah. of Treasury, but they consult and we consult with them around implementation of policy. We we advocate and champion for law change, especially where we think the, uh, the outcomes are unfair mm. or where they're at odds with community expectations. So we have a role around that. Mm. And uh, yeah, we work with Treasury in championing those sorts of law changes. We also identify when Treasury has ideas, how administrable they are, mm. um, how much they would cost to administer. So mm. yes, we, yes. We, we have a lot of uh, legally qualified people who work in that space as well. And what, you know, if you had to think about some practical advice about people who wanted to have a career in tax which strangely strange Tom that anyone would be so passionate about it I still think there, six, I think there are still 16,000 of us who are passionate about tax and there's a lot more accountants out there as well but anyway if you had some advice to some advice to give somebody who really wanted to pursue that career um, what's some if you had a practical piece of advice what would you give them I think when you're at that point choosing the career that you want have a rough idea about where you want to be in five years and ten years time mm. 
have a rough idea about what your core values are. It doesn't mean you have to, from day one, be perfectly aligned to them. If, if you have the good luck of being able to from the very start, I think that's great. But really importantly too, is if you have that longer term vision where your career wants to be, mm-hmm. take those as stepping stones to get there. So if you need to start in the private sector or you need to do something else to get there, get those skills and qualifications and, and experience. But if you know where you want to be, start thinking about everything that you do that's going to help you get there. Oh, good. And Tom, if I had to ask you, what are the, what do you think were some of the opportunities that were given to you over your career? If not, what are some of the regrets that you had? I think the, the look, the opportunities would have had to start in 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 the private sector when I started with uh, with Arthur Anderson it, it, it's, it's in a sense always incremental those opportunities mm. are, are rarely given to you for out of random reasons mm. the opportunities are always there in a sense because of what you've already done or because of the expectations and belief that the people have in you so be open to those opportunities um, make people aware of what you can and can't of what you can do and make people aware of what you'd like to do and then those opportunities are more likely to come to you um, I had the opportunity at Arthur Anderson to work in the tax division because I had the law degree yeah. um, I wasn't stuck in the audit section mm. or in the insolvency section those opportunities then allowed me to w- do more use my law degree more than the mm. other areas when I did that, I had the opportunity, as I said, to work for Butterworths. Mm. That experience and the people I got to know through that process also gave me the opportunity to work for the tax office. Um, and ever since then, within the tax office, it's not like I've had one job. Yeah, no. Every few years your job changes and everything that you do along the way puts you in the position and the respect of others to do the next thing. Mm. And the roles I have now are often ones I did not expect five years ago. Yeah, because you've moved quite a bit within the tax office. Yeah. I think that's the same with almost every Commonwealth employment agent, or probably state Mm. as well. You know, you you join thinking you're doing one task, but then you're doing others. I mean, even with my one, it's still Mm. the same. So it's it's quite true. You you get different Mm. opportunities depending on which government, what the priorities are. Uh, where they want to focus, and there's mm. projects on top of your normal job. Yeah. And, and I know Tom's had lots of opportunities around those as well. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I was going to ask you, how did you get to Brisbane? Because you were based in Sydney, weren't you? Yes, I mm. grew up in Sydney, and my, my uh, uh, career started in Sydney and even started with the tax office in Sydney. Mm. And that's one of the great advantages of working for a, a Commonwealth agency. Mm. Because they have uh, locations and they work across Australia, you always have the opportunity to change your life and move cities. And because of our family situation at the time, it made sense for us to move from Sydney to Brisbane. And both of us working for Commonwealth organisations were able to actually very simply, once we, once we asked, is this possible, mm-hmm. you'll find most people want to work with you for that. And we were both able to change our change where we worked. 
I know a lot of people in the private sector are very tied to their one employer. Mm. But we, we had the good fortune of being able to make that change for family mm. reasons because we worked in the public took sector. Took a few phone calls, really. That was kind of it. And if you're mm. a, a well-respected employee, um, mm. that was all it took. Well, that was good. So it, it only took you a few months, didn't yeah. it, before you Five were up months. here? Yeah. Five yeah. months from when you thought about it to being up here. Yeah. That's pretty quick. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's part of that idea that you, you make your own luck. I mean, you, you make choices... And often the choices you make, you don't think you're going to actually use. Mm. But then when this came up that we really wanted to move cities, this was one of the advantages from the roles that we had. So we both probably gave up a degree of you know, additional salary you know, and, 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 and remuneration. Mm. But in terms of that work-life balance, it wasn't just about the immediate work-life balance, mm. but it does set you up for, for, for choices and opportunities other than just a bigger salary. So that's one of the advantages, really, of one, like you said, working for a Commonwealth agency that's national, that you can move around. And with other... yeah, Even though, you know... Oh, well, I mean, it doesn't limit... When you've done something in tax, you can always go back to accountancy. You know, you're really... You could work anywhere in Australia Absolutely. if you wanted to. Yeah. I think um, you, had, you had teams in Perth and in, in Victoria mm. and Tasmania at different points, didn't uh, you? At the moment, I'm working with people all around the country. We, mm. have, we have virtual teams. Um, I, I spend some of my time with our local teams because for some issues it's really good mm. for that face-to-face -face engagement. But when you're talking about the specialisations you have, mm. uh, they end up being national. So I, I have, again, the, the wonderful opportunity of working with people and, and growing people all around the country. It's fantastic. Now, what are you doing in your spare time, Tom? <laughs> um, Philosophy? <laughs> I, I do enjoy reading a lot about uh, politics and mm. philosophy and, and sociology. Mm. Um, I like other things too, like bushwalking um, mm. and um, just just taking time out like that. But, but, but my passions always seem to be around what what makes society tick and what makes society work and what makes humans work now, that, that was what attracted me to law in the first place mm. and i'm still finding i have the same attraction but now it's around philosophy of law and i think one day it's going to take me to a phd oh well <laughs> well you had um tom had a secondment to qut for six months and um that's really sparked your interest hasn't it um, yeah and again that's probably one of those opportunities as well mm -hmm. the secondment offer came around and i put my hand up for that and uh, it gave me now some some new connections into academia and when was that just recently oh that was about two years ago now yeah and um from that i've, I've got some connections there and been been talking around some philosophy mm. of law and in that time, it was very much for me. It was very much a sabbatical where I could pursue mm. some better understanding for me about the tax system mm. and being able to read other perspectives on what's good and bad about tax, not just in Australia but globally. Mm. Some very right-wing views and some very left-wing views, and an opportunity to actually start to try and mm. make sense of all of that. And so, uh, any views? Have you? come to any views or anything that you'd like to share with us about where your philosophy is going or what do you think about the tax system in Australia as a whole you know in terms of the international space I think Australia mm. leads a lot of innovation mm. around the tax system mm. both in terms of making it work 
uh, on a day-to-day basis mm. for, for the population generally. I think also in being able to deal with a lot of the challenges that the global financial system creates, mm. I think Australia, that expression punches above its weight on a lot of those issues. A lot of the mm. innovations have been either initiated or driven or promoted by Australia, especially through mm. the OECD. We have a fantastic representation through that mm. constantly. Um, as I said, I think the tax system is what allows collective action uh, mm. to make a better world. It's the only way that at that state level that mm. government can be funded to do things better. Obviously, government has to spend its money on a lot of th- on a lot of things that it is maintenance. Mm. But at least it creates an opportunity to do things better. Mm. It's a balance, isn't it? Because you know there is, ba- you know, it's a balance about driving, you know, industry and, mm. but also making sure that there's enough services that uh, benefits the whole of the community, not just some of the community. My yeah. real interest mm. at the moment is around artificial intelligence and how that's going to change mm. the tax system. Oh, really? And how it's going to change the nature of law and mm. its actual challenges to the rule of law. Yes. And I think obviously everyone's experience with uh, Centrelink and Robotech mm. is 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 uh, very sanguine. Uh, mm. So the whole artificial intelligence and and robotic decision making is something I'm I'm really interested in that we don't lose sight of the need for fairness and judgment and taking individual circumstances into account. And I think that's the the really big challenge when it comes to um, public sector administration and the need to make efficiency one of the drivers, that balance between rule of law and efficiency. It's Mm. it's been an issue forever, but artificial intelligence is putting a whole new perspective on it. Making artificial intelligence not just a slave to us, but we don't want it to be a master, and Mm. that's that's the difference, and that's where the the fascination lies, isn't it? It's it's always very interesting. As you know, I work quite a bit with vulnerable consumers, and, and industry is often asking, you know, we just want a set criteria that we can apply and you know but it's not about a set criteria this is about individual or like you said about individual circumstances and you almost must always have the window or the space to be able to take those into consideration because otherwise you see some terrible injustices um, even if it's seen that these are the criteria and they seem fair criteria there's always people on the edges absolutely and Mm. it's this notion that you can never design criteria which will always do justice in every case Mm. and a proper justice system always needs to step back and look at the outcome and be prepared to say well that criteria didn't make sense but trying mm. to balance that back into a rule of law system is the challenge. Yeah, I think it's going to be a challenge. So, the last question that I really wanted to ask you is if you hadn't pursued the law, would you have pursued something else? Maybe accountancy? No, no. <laughs> what? No. Francis no. is shaking her head. So. I, 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 I would say being a park ranger. <laughs> that's, that, that's true. I mean, Fran- Francis knows that my passion always before I decided I needed to do the accounting degree was um, 
Well, science. I, I love science. Mm. I love the outdoors. I love bushwalking. So, so my dream before I got stuck by reality <laughs> was to actually be a science officer for the New South Wales National Parks Service. <laughs> and I could imagine I, 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 could have, I could have thoroughly enjoyed that. So if the tax uh, tax office doesn't work out, <laughs> I think it's too, late. it's too late for that now. <laughs> they wouldn't have you. <laughs> hey, um, Francis, was there anything else that you think I didn't get out of Tom that we really should have asked him? I think you did a pretty good job. There's a lot around the IT space that he's been very passionate about in the last probably two years almost. Um, decision making around. Hmm. Um, yeah, um, artificial intelligence decision making mm. and, and the role that that will play in in uh, making law, and, yeah. and that is a real concern as much as an important issue to be researched and investigated. Mm. So, um, and I have a, a similar passion for that, so I understand where that's coming from. I think AI will be the big disruptor in the legal Very profession. Mm. Um, certainly, I hadn't thought about it in the tax um, system as well, but. It actually makes sense. I, I would have thought the biggest risk was globalisation, but perhaps there will be AI. I think it's efficiencies, people trying to mm. make money out of yeah. efficiencies around that, and that's where we need to mm. be very careful. Hey, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Francis. You're, um, you're very welcome. <laughs> Pleasure. Oh, that was a fun thing. Now we can get, get back to drinking our red wine. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Lunching with Lawyers. If you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests, head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below. If you have suggestions, ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series, head to the Contact Us page on our website, www.loretacrete.com.